Father, we thank you that through Christ, you do bring to us life eternal. We pray that you will help us to to grasp more fully your life in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. In one way or another, I guess to one degree or another, we all want to live a life of meaning and purpose. I'd be surprised if any of us hope to get to the end of our days and think and hope, man, I'm so glad I didn't accomplish anything. I doubt if, if we're, we're glad that, that we would be glad and hope that, uh, you know, when, when people gather around our grave at the cemetery, that, that the consensus is not, well, you know what, they didn't do anything for their, with their life. They wasted the whole thing. I don't think we hope to come to that. And yet, there is something in us as we live out our days makes us wonder about exactly where we're headed and what we're accomplishing. And, and something in us might even worry a bit about what people might say about our life when they gather around our grave. What if we get to the end of our days and we realize that we've spent our life in vain? It's not a concern that's limited to the 21st century. At least as far back as the New Testament, it's a concern of the people who are a part of God's kingdom. In fact, the Apostle Paul speaks to this very issue of purpose and meaning in life. Though he addresses it in a way that maybe we don't expect. As we've discussed the past three weeks, Paul has spent the first 57 verses of this 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians reminding us of the crucial and primary nature of the resurrection of the body. In a variety of ways and and through a variety of images, Paul makes the point that all who are in Christ will be bodily raised from death to life. And if we're, if we're not going to be bodily raised, then Christ wasn't bodily raised either. And if Christ isn't bodily raised, then the tomb isn't empty at all. And if the tomb isn't empty, then everything upon which we have founded our faith, our lives, our death, is futile. And... and And we are all fools. We are all miserable, pathetic, lying, deluded fools. But it is true. Paul begins verse 20 by stating emphatically, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
Christ who was dead and buried is the first fruits, the first of those who will be raised from the dead. And in verse 23, Paul says that Christ who was dead and buried is now alive. And because Christ is alive, he is leading all of his children from death to life. For everyone whose life is turned to him, for all who are in Christ, will be raised with him. But notice that our resurrection is described in future tense language. Verse 51 Paul says, listen, I'll tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. When Christ comes, those who belong to him will be raised, will be changed. And since Christ has not yet come back, the, tr- the last trumpet has not yet sounded, the dead in Christ are not yet raised. And it reminds us that, of what the church historic has declared through the centuries, that our eternal existence is, is a two-step kind of process. When those who are, who are in Christ die, the first step is heaven or paradise, it's It's the place that Jesus promises to the thief on the cross. Heaven is the immediate place of of our existence after death. And and it's described as by Jesus in John's gospel and by John in his revelation as a place of rejoicing and peace. No more pain or sorrow. No more death. And it's heaven, really, because we're with Jesus. We'll see him face to face. We will know him and it will be glorious. Glorious. And this is life after death. But the second stage, the resurrection of the dead, which is the focus of this 15th chapter, comes later. It comes when Jesus returns, when the last trumpet sounds. This is what N.T. Wright, the Bishop of Durham for the Church of England, it's what he calls in his book, Surprised by Hope, life after life after death. And on that day, we will have new transformed bodies. Not unlike Jesus' resurrected body. And we will be transformed to live eternally in God's new heaven and new earth. This is the day when God will begin the process of restoring the earth and heaven. And his children, those who are in him, those who have been raised to new life in him, will be his workers in the new heaven and the new earth. In the new heaven and new earth, we will have work to do as Adam and Eve had work to do in the Garden of Eden. Remember, the, the curse of sin isn't that, okay, now they're going to have to work. The curse of sin is that when they work, the ground's going to fight back. But in contrast to, to now when our work is often frustrating and debilitating and painful and relentless, on that day, it will be different. One thing, we'll do it all for the glory of God. We try to do that now, but on that day, we will accomplish it. It will all be done for the glory of God. He will be the focus of all our work. And we will work, but there won't be deadlines. There won't be stress. We will create and build and work as a response of our love for God. 
It will be the fulfillment of what Paul writes in Colossians 3.17, that whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul spends these 57 verses making this point because some in Corinth are teaching Platonism, dualism, which states that matter is evil and spirit is good. They cannot fathom a bodily resurrection because to them, eternity is shedding these, these evil bodies, being free from the evil creatureliness of this world. And so when Paul comes to verse 58, after all he said, he admonishes the people in Corinth to stand firm in the truth that they've been taught. Let nothing move you from what you've been taught about resurrection from the, from the very beginning. And then he says, knowing this truth, entrenched in the truth of a bodily resurrection with Christ, give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. For whatever you do in the Lord is not in vain. What you do for the Lord is never empty or useless or meaningless or unimportant. People around us and people in in the way we view things on this earth might sometimes think it's meaningless and useless and unimportant. But if it's the work of the Lord, it's not. For what we do now is preparation for what we will do with and for God throughout all eternity. Dualism says that our ultimate goal is to escape this world. Resurrection says that our ultimate goal is to be a part of God's work in transforming this world. A task that will reach its fulfillment on that day when the dead in Christ are raised. And this truth reminds us that God who created the earth with such love and care and majesty isn't going to abandon it as though it really wasn't that good after all. In resurrection, he is going to redeem what he has created as our eternal home. This doesn't mean that the earth is more important than heaven. It just means that the earth and heaven are connected. That God's created earth is good and important and meaningful as God's created heaven is good and important and meaningful. And we're called to continue the task of God's eternal kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. If this is not true, then everything we're doing now is temporary and limited and disconnected to eternity. And we are really dualists who believe that we're most content and most spiritual and most holy when we can rid ourselves of this earthly created stuff. What we do in the present for the Lord is not useless or ineffectual or empty or futile because it will indeed last into God's future. The question then becomes, what is the resurrection work of God's people in this world that reflects our resurrection promise in the world to come? What's the mission of resurrection people on earth? There are many elements that we probably could discuss and mention, but I'm intrigued by the three suggestions of N.T. Wright as to the mission of the church in preparing the world 
and Christians of the world to come. A mission that models the work of God in this world as it is in heaven. The first thing is evangelism. We know that God is concerned about the eternal destiny of all people. It's important to understand that Christ's resurrection doesn't eliminate the threat of eternal death. There are people who reject Christ, who turn away from Christ, and will experience the reality, the sad, sad reality of eternal death. Our mission is to bear witness of Christ who desires all people to experience eternal life. And the resurrection declares that our witness to the world is, as Wright puts it, that God is God that Jesus is Lord, that the powers of evil have been defeated, that God's new world has begun. Evangelism is a call to submit to the Lordship of Christ and to know the power of Christ now because of what he's done and what he will do. But, if our, but our calling is, is not just to get people to heaven, to just sort of get them in the door, as though that's the end of it. Our calling is to lead people to Jesus. Tell people see that Christ is the hope for life and that new life in Christ begins now and continues forever. And we witness that despite all of life that screams otherwise, in Christ there is hope. Hope for the present because of our hope for the future. This is a holistic love for people who are created for relationship with Christ. The second thing is justice. God has always been concerned for justice. God says that Abraham will keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. In the law, God commands justice in business transactions. He talks about using honest scales and honest weights and his And the reason that's important, he says, is because I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Israel's judges are commanded to judge the people fairly. Samuel says that David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. Psalm 82 declares, defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Isaiah's prophecy of the Messiah declares, he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. And Isaiah 56 connects justice with salvation. He writes, this is what the Lord says, maintain justice and do what is right for my salvation is close at hand. Luke 4 tells of Jesus beginning his ministry and going to the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth and taking up the scroll of Isaiah and reading, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus says to the crowd, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And Jesus' mission of justice doesn't change after his resurrection. And there are two theories about the work of of God's people in the world as it applies to justice. 
One theory says that the, the world is such a mess, there's really nothing we can do about it. So we'll just sit back and wait till Christ returns. We just let it go. The other theory says that we can save the world if we just try hard enough. Our primary goal is to build the kingdom here on earth through social and political and cultural revolution. But both of those two extremes are rooted in dualism. The power of the resurrection is that Christ is loose in the world. And that's why we care about justice. Now, resurrection frightens the unjust because you can't control things anymore. Now, what do dictators and governments typically do to revolutionaries? We silence them. But if you put a revolutionary in a grave and three days later he's literally up walking around alive, you have a monumental problem on your hands. What can you possibly do to threaten someone who's been raised from the dead? No wonder the people who hold the power and the money and the influence and the ammunition in this world don't want to talk about resurrection. But we do. Because of resurrection, Christ's and ours, we care about justice in every area of life in the world. We care about our brothers and sisters who live with the threat of persecution every day. We care about the plight of refugees, the boys and girls who are sucked into the sex trade and the slave trade. We care about the imbalance of the world's and national economics. And we work for remedies, not just because our financial situation has been now affected, but because there are millions and millions of people all over the world who are hungry and dying. We care about our justice system. A few years ago, Reader's Digest ran an article about some of the things that are the outcomes of the three strikes in your outlaw that many states have implemented. They told the story of a 37-year-old Army veteran who had... Uh, three children and a drug habit who went into a Kmart and attempted to steal five children's videos. Unfortunately, it was the third time he'd been arrested for a crime and he was sentenced to 50 years in prison. 50 years. And he told story after story of people who had committed a third petty offense and were given more jail time, more prison time, than a person who had committed murder for the first time. And what they're finding is that this, these laws are having the, the most dire effects. The people who have been most affected by these laws are African Americans. I think Jesus is concerned about that. We care about how immigrants, documented and undocumented, are treated. We care about racial issues. It's to our shame that evangelical Christians were some of the very last people to get on board with the issue of civil rights. And and honestly, it's to our shame that we are too often insensitive 
to the pain and the burden that people of color face. We care about gender issues. We care about protecting the most innocent among us, including, but not limited to, unborn children. We care about the well-being of all people, even if we disagree with their lifestyle choices. And even if we do disagree with their lifestyle choices, the moment we hear someone speak a word of hate or do an act of violence against those very people we disagree with, we're the first ones to stand up their defense. It's interesting that chapter 16 is all about people. And it intrigues me that immediately following this treatise on the resurrection, Paul challenges the Corinthians to take an offering so that the people in the Jerusalem church have food and clothing and can have the necessities, basic necessities of life. They got me thinking that if financial assistance is one way, it's not the only way, but it's one way, one corporate way of getting involved in issues of justice, maybe we ought to take an offering as one means of expressing our corporate concern for justice in the world. So we're going to do that. We're going to stop right now, and we're going to do something tangible. We're going to take an offering for people in need, and we're going to give half of it to World Hope and their ministry with refugees. And we're going to give the other half to our local food pantry to help people who are in need in Allegheny County. Now, I realize you didn't come today knowing we were going to take two offerings. That's okay. Give what you can. And if you'd like to give something, you know, not ready today, and you'd like to give something in the next few days, we're going to hold on to this to the middle of the week before we send the money out. I'm going to ask the ushers to come and to assist us as we give to people in need.
Father, may these gifts be a token, the commitment of our hearts to the resurrected Christ, the call of justice in this world. Amen. I suspect that um, few of us are surprised that evangelism and justice are a, um, a part of the church's resurrection mission. We get that. But we might be surprised that the third element that Rice mentions is beauty. But you know, it does make sense. If Paul's writing to combat dualism, what better than beauty to remind us that this world is God's gift to us. This world is good and lovely and that it's not going to be abandoned. It's going to be restored at Christ's coming. God loves beauty and God is extravagant with his creative beauty. God doesn't have to create 354 species of sharks or 1,100 species of bats or, or more than a million, some estimate 10 million Species of insects or 10 to 15,000 species of ferns. He doesn't have to create 100 million stars in our galaxy, not to mention the millions of stars in the other galaxies. So much of what God creates doesn't have to be created. It has nothing to do with being utilitarian or even pragmatic. He just creates because it's beautiful. Because he loves to create. Look at the temple. The gold and the silver and the, uh, the, the, the lumber from Lebanon. And the precious stones that are a part of that magnificent structure. And all at God's instruction. Does God need a temple that elaborate? Of course not. But maybe, maybe Israel does. Maybe we do. I have to say that I would argue that God is often more extravagant than he is pragmatic, particularly when it comes to beauty. Wright makes the comment that beauty matters, dare I say, almost as much as spirituality and justice. Now, of course, if you have to choose between beautiful slavery and an ugly uh, exodus, you go for the exodus. But as William Temple said in a different though related context, fortunately, we don't have to make that choice. The new heaven and the new earth will be beautiful beyond our current comprehension. Its beauty will inspire us in our worship of God. And through God's grace, we will create beauty as a means of worshiping Him. So doesn't it make sense that we would become more sensitive to the beauty of God and God's people, God's creation now? Not because it's pragmatic or utilitarian or even necessarily religious, but simply because it's beautiful. And because God has made it beautiful and because God has given people gifts to create beautiful things. So in order to improve our vision for beauty, simply for beauty's sake, we're going to take some time this morning to experience beauty in various forms. 
These are just samples, just tastes to ignite our thoughts and our sensitivities to beauty. Perhaps beauty that we might ignore otherwise. And to see all of this as a gift of God, as a preparation for eternity in God's new heaven and new earth. Two years ago, I was asked to write a tribute poem for Bill Allen, who was my neighbor, and I was happy to agree to do that. And I hope that nothing that I have to say will embarrass Bill or Jane. They didn't know I was doing this today. As soon as I had said yes, Jane wanted to know if I needed biographical information on Bill. And I don't know if you're uh, familiar with the way Uh, celebratory poems go, but biographical information tends to get in the way. Uh, Besides, my my knowledge of Bill had more to do with who he was as a creator than uh, the entire life story. Uh, Bill is a man who was full of music. In addition to that, his, uh, his heart is with the Lord. And so he spent his uh, creative years, his, his adult years, creating music to the praise of God. And so I had that in mind when I set about writing this tribute poem. There are five parts to this poem. Um, the first, third, and fifth part are written after the fashion of the Beatitudes. You don't want to look this up because you won't be able to follow it there, but you will recognize the pattern. And uh, if we actually can make this work, um, there we go, I will ask you to read those parts with me. This, the second and fourth parts are not, I'm not asking you to read with me. We, we move from the Beatitudes to two areas of uh, what we might call the visual arts, although that's not quite it. The first one has to do with uh, actual art uh, in a very humble setting. Uh, this this fourth one, the fourth section, uh, has to do with God's creation in a way that uh, we notice, but we don't always uh, see through, understand. So if you would read with me, please, these Beatitudes. Let us say, blessed are the common places, for they shall sustain us. Blessed are the humble, for they shall guide our steps. Blessed are the reticent, Blessed the quiet, for they shall point us to God. They shall open our ears. On a curb at a village crossroads late at night, passing among shadows, a trash bin painted after Van Gogh, redeemed by a copier, nameless artist, who turns our thoughts upward in great darkness to starry songs of light, called to bear witness in this troubled world. We travel homeward through night, our journeys somehow enlightened. Let us say, blessed are the unlikely, for they shall be called by name. 
Blessed are the deep coals, for they shall be fanned to flame. Blessed are the willing, blessed the hunger hearts, for their hands shall be calloused, they shall be given abundantly. Joy of spring dawning, sun dazzling, bush blooming, for Scythia in bloom, joyously red at its heart, all but hidden in Ariolan, a cardinal declaims his song, pulsing a many-noted aria, called to witness unwitting wanderers we stand, arrested, air vibrant, our very souls aflame. Let us say, blessed are the uncommon places, for they shall breathe life. Blessed are the restless minds, for they are heir to the God of creation. Blessed is the deep dwelling, blessed the music maker, who has brought us nearer to God and bids us listen. Children, listen. Of course, there's much in the visual arts to inspire us about beauty. This morning, we have placed a few samples here on the platform, on the table. Most of these are, have been created by people in this church or people who were at one time a part of this church. And... Um, I encourage you, I know it's a little difficult to see these things probably from where you're seated this morning, but afterwards to come and to ponder and to look at them. And the floral arrangements that remind us of the beauty of God's nature. Take just a few moments to look and to ponder and to be absorbed in this beauty. There's also the beauty of the windows, the beauty of the organ, both visually and with its sound. The beauty of this building, with which we are blessed to come and worship. There is beauty outside of what we can actually bring into this building. And so we're going to see a, a slide presentation of, again, just a sampling of some of the beauty outside of us that God has created and beauty that God has inspired others to create.
sitting and viewing the beauty on his hometown of Bath in England, that um, holy old Pierpoint composed the hymn for the beauty of the earth. It seemed an, an appropriate way of uh, sort of summarizing what we've seen and experienced with the beauty of God and what he has created and what his people create.
be resurrection people is to be connected to evangelism and justice and beauty. And they're all connected to us and with us and for us by the love of Christ. You can't really care about evangelism and not care about justice and beauty. And you can't really care about justice and not care about evangelism and beauty. And you can't care about beauty. Not a heart for evangelism and justice. They're all expressions of Christ's love for us and our love for Him and for one another as resurrection people who are living now in this world to do the work of the kingdom because we know what God has promised us in the new heaven and the new earth to come. You know, last week I, I mentioned the, the, the children's bedtime prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. What if we turned that around? What if instead of if I should die before I wake, our prayer was if I should wake before I die? What kind of world might it be if God's resurrection people woke up to the power of the resurrection in this world because of the power of the resurrection to come. May God make us resurrection people who live for him and do his work now because of what he's promised us yet to come. Heavenly Father, we gather this morning, we thank you for the power and the truth of the resurrection, Christ's resurrection and the promise of our own. We celebrate the promise of living and working with you in the new heaven and the new earth and ask that you would give us grace to prepare us for that day by living and working with you and your grace now in these days. We also today give you thanks for the gift of family. We realize that families come in a variety of ways and with varying degrees of success. We want to thank you for the gift of the people who nurtured us and cared for us and loved us. And we know that no family is perfect, so we pray that you would help us to be parents who love our children and lead them to Christ, who love our brothers and sisters, who love our friends, who love all of those connected to us in your grace and mercy. Father, we pray for the needs that are on our minds of so many among us who are facing illness. Some are grieving. Some are struggling to find a job. Some are being eaten alive by anger and bitterness. Some are overwhelmed with disappointment from unfulfilled expectations.
Help us. Heal us. Transform us to live as resurrection people in a world of so much heartache, pain, and suffering. Father, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Let the truth, the reality, and the power of the resurrected Christ be the purpose and the motivation of our lives this day and every day. And it's in the name of our risen Savior that we pray. With the joy and confidence of resurrection people, remembering the prayer of faith and power that he taught us in which we now pray together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.